Hey there, welcome to the Business of Agriculture podcast. It's me, Damian Mason. You know, we get together here every week and we discuss issues and interesting information involved with and in the business of food and agriculture. I am with two good dudes. They are with the National Hay Association, Jeff Pluard and Bob McDowell. They were just in my audience. I did a presentation for the National Hay Association, and it dawned on me, this is an industry that a lot of people don't know that much about. You know about corn, soy. We bring in people to talk about groceries. We talk about grocery trends. We've even talked about hemp, but we've never talked about hay here on the Business of Agriculture podcast. Got me thinking, there's probably a lot that you don't know and would find interesting about the business of hay. For instance, a lot of our hay gets exported. They're going to tell you how that works. In my career, I've done three hay events. I've done the Washington Washington Hay Growers, I've done the New Mexico Hay Association, and I've done the National Hay Association. So it's a bigger industry than you probably thought about. Remember, a lot of those acres you drive by, maybe they have a little curve to them, maybe they have a little hill, maybe they're, uh, maybe they're a little bit, um, not what you'd call corn and soybean acres. They are hay acres. Okay, Jeff Pluard, Bob McDowell, welcome to the show. Jeff, tell me about yourself. You're in El Centro, Imperial Valley, California. You're in the hay and beef business. Give it to me. Thanks, Damien. Yes, we're um, we're in the export hay business. We export uh, about 130,000 tons of uh, various different hay products a year to uh, Japan, Korea, China, Taiwan, and uh, most recently uh, the Middle East. Uh, and uh, Abu Dhabi, Dubai, and uh, Saudi Arabia. Okay, so you're in Southern California. For those that don't know, because when everybody thinks of California, they think of Hollywood. I lived in San Diego County, and when I was a lighting fixture salesman 25 years ago, I went out to the Imperial Valley and went to El Centro, California, which is very deserty. So you raise alfalfa, I'm presuming, and it's irrigated, right? Yes, we raise uh, alfalfa and various grass straws, uh, sedan grass, klein grass, Bermuda grass, uh, mainly uh, Bermuda grass for seed crops. But uh, the Imperial Valley is about 450,000 acres of uh, irrigated land from uh, all irrigated from the Colorado River. Uh, flows to the Imperial Valley by gravity, and we grow uh, various, uh, all types of different winter vegetable crops, and then a lot of uh, hay crops. About a third of the uh, valley, 130,000, 140,000 acres is always rotated in alfalfa. Okay, and you're not even on the farm side. You are on the beef and the hay export side. You don't actually grow an acre of alfalfa. Your company does not. That is correct. We grow nothing. Okay, we're going to come back to you and talk about exporting. Bob McDowell is about from the opposite side of the world. And I mean opposite like opposite. Most people don't even realize there's, that there are citizens living where Bob McDowell lives. He's from the upper peninsula of Michigan in a town called Rudyard, like Rudyard Kipling. Uh, the poet, or is he an art writer? He was a novelist or a poet. Yes. <laughs> Okay, so, all right, Rudyard, Michigan, Upper Peninsula. All of the population lives down in the Lower Peninsula, and so there you are. You're in the Upper Peninsula, and you're growing hay. Wow. Tell us about that. Well, my father started selling hay back in 1948. Um, At that time, Rudyard was almost known as as the Timothy capital of the world because back then they didn't grow Timothy out west because they had no irrigation. Um, most of the people settled in that area. They had small acres. They'd farm, make a little hay. Then they'd um, work in the woods in the wintertime. Okay. So answer this for the people that are listening that say, hey, wait a minute. I'm out here in Massachusetts. Remember, I've done the Cranberry Association. I, I talk to a lot of diversity, man. I've got cotton. I've got cranberries. I've got canola. I've got cattle. And they're saying, wait a minute. Timothy. That's a guy's name. What's Timothy? Timothy is a grass hay that has been very... 
for the horse market. It's designed for the horse market. It's, it's, a, it's a cool grass hay, so it grows really well in our northern climate. We get one cutting a year, usually in July, after the snow melts. <laughs> but it's a short season we have, but we get one cutting. Um, we, we sell it to um, southern markets generally. The horse market is shrinking, but and our markets are shrinking. We do not produce as much hay as we used to in the past in our area. Okay, so you grow this, Timothy. It's a grass that was invented by man to be designed for horses. Why? Digestibility, uh, coarse, coarseness or fineness of it? What are we talking about? It was, it's a drier hay. It um, doesn't have as much protein in it as, as alfalfa or clover. We used to grow a lot of clover in our area. It, it was our premium hay at one time, mm-hmm. but the alfalfa market has um, took that market over. Um, alfalfa does not do well in our area because of our climate right. and our soil. All right, so all your hay, almost none of it stays around because you don't have a lot of animals up there. So this all gets put on a truck and goes to southern markets. Describe, define southern. Southern to you is southern to you is uh, Detroit. Yes, well, <laughs> we do sell some in Michigan, in southern Michigan. <laughs> And um, a lot of it in our past markets have been down to Kentucky. Um, Florida has always been a huge market for us. It's not as big as it used to be, but it used to be. It's probably still our main market. I, Georgia. Okay, so Florida, Florida horses are where a lot of your stuff goes. So it gets on a on a, on a it goes on a regular semi, like a, a box a box semi trailer, and gets taken down to the people in Florida and goes for those horses. Then what? They go to retail outlets. They go to horse tracks. Where does it go? In Florida, it, we sell it to. Um, their feed stores and then they sell it individually most of it they have some farms that they sell it to most of it people come in and they'll buy a bale of hay and or 10 bales of hay and or they'll deliver that to them um all right so your stuff goes to horse places it goes it goes through retail and then i'm gonna go back over here to jeff mr plurd 130,000 tons let's put that in perspective because the average person is saying wait a minute you know i, I deal in bushels or i don't even deal in any of that i sell seed or i'm out here in the equipment business 130,000 tons okay when i was a kid we had small bales i'm gonna call those bales that i picked up and threw around my entire growing up on the dairy farm 50 to 65 pound bales am i right yes that's correct but in the Imperial Valley, we're doing a three-type bale, which is uh, usually with alfalfa about 120 pounds, and some of the grass is about 100 pounds. Okay, 120 pounds. You say three-type. He's got three pieces of string on it, and it's 120 pounds, so the dimensions on that are going to be about? About 16 by... Uh, inches. Inches yeah. by uh, 23 by 48 inches long. Okay. And you know those dimensions because you're shipping this stuff to Asia. Uh, and then you said Saudi Arabia. Good God. Does that go down through the Panama Canal to go over to Saudi Arabia? How, how does stuff go from California to Saudi Arabia? Uh, typically, it would get transshipped through uh, Singapore and go, um, so it would go west and then keep going west all the way around, uh, but it would go to Singapore and get unloaded, and then another another ship would pick that container up and take it in there. Isn't it interesting that there is enough demand, and somehow in Saudi, if I'm in Saudi Arabia, I can get hay from California, and it makes sense, as opposed to just going like uh, down the road and figuring out a way to grow it there. How does that work? Yeah, it's just amazing, but the... Uh, the, the shipment of products and containerized movement coming from, from Asia uh, coming to the United States is, is quite large. In the uh, Basically, we're getting a backhaul shipment. and so Okay, so uh, what comes back from them? Um, what goes back to Asia? 
Yeah, when you, you know, what, what, your stuff goes there, then what comes back? Oh, we're talking iPhones and TVs and electronic parts and clothes and all kinds of consumables here that we use. <clears throat> okay, 130,000 tons, so we break that into, uh, you, well, you just do the easy math, uh, uh, you know, 130,000. Uh, uh, Pounds per bale, you said, and then you can do the math. So that's a lot of bales. It gets put in these cargo container boxes, right? Yes, actually, we uh, we take those bales of hay and we compress them, and we'll we'll compress what we call three tie bales, and that forty eight inch bale will get pressed down to about twenty inches, and then the so it's uh, almost like a brick. This is almost like so for the people that are listening that don't quite get this, you're saying because if I, like on my farm I've got bales of hay, they they're heavy and they're dense, but they're not dense enough that you could justify putting them on a cargo ship to go halfway around the world. So you kind of do almost like they do at a scrapyard within when they crush a car and then make it into a big block right yes exactly and we'll take uh, three by four big bales and uh, there's several different types of packaging that we use kind of a funny story is uh one of my uh, my neighbors had a bow and arrow deal and uh, he always said you know i used to shoot the arrows with uh into hay bales and but they would go through them and get me a couple of those press bales and so uh so i got him a couple of bales and it broke his arrow so. say the arrow wouldn't even penetrate it so it's like, hitting, like oh hitting yeah, a block it of wood hitting like a block of wood okay so this stuff goes over there and it's mostly alfalfa what happens once it gets there we know that bob's over here telling us that his hay gets fed to horses probably a lot of backyard horses hobby horses sometimes horse track horses what happens to your hay that goes to asia or the middle east Mainly, it's going into the uh, the dairies in Asia, and uh, maybe about 20% of it goes into the beef cattle in Asia. So when they get it, they get this thing that's as dense as a chunk of wood that would break an arrow if you shot it with a bow and arrow. Then they put it in some kind of a grinder, or do they moisten it? How do they make it so, I mean, a cow can't eat something that would break a, an arrow? Well, in Japan, for an example, there's still a lot of smaller dairies. Uh, the average dairy in Japan is still about 58 head. And so uh, a lot of that's free choice, but there are some uh, bigger dairy operations, and they would take that bale and they would uh, take the uh, the strap off that is uh, used to package it and, and put it into a, a total mix ration and add it with other d- ingredients, including corn and that type of thing, and make a, a what they call a TMR ration. Yeah, where it's ground up and thrown into like a feed mixer, that kind of thing. Makes you wonder, and you don't need to even answer the economics because you can't, neither can I. It must make economic sense. Why wouldn't they just take milk from California that we've got too much of in, Cal- in, in Japan as opposed to taking your hay and then bothering trying to milk 58 cows when up there in Tulare County there's <laughs> 58,000 cows on every road? Well, it, uh, you know, the pride of their agriculture, they want to make their own uh, their, their own milk and, and dairy products and that type of thing. And so... Um, and for the ease of, uh, of that area, they, they have too much humidity and they really can't produce their own hay. And it's very easy for them to import it in a container, might get delivered directly into a dairy or into a, a, a nearby port, port so, warehouse. So, yeah, they, you're saying that uh, they can't grow hay, but they still want to produce their own milk, even though I think they should just be taking milk from California. There's a certain amount of pride or control or maybe food independence kind of an idea there. Yes, exactly. And uh, they... Uh, yeah, it's it's just independence of their uh, their own uh, industry. All right, so your stuff goes mostly for dairy and all these places, and then Bob's stuff goes for basically it's wasted. It just goes to horses. I mean, that's really what we're talking about here. Bob, take the microphone. Bob, let's. How do you feel knowing that you're making a living off of something that's as useless as a horse? I'm very happy. I always said I love horses. <laughs> I've never owned a horse in my life. I've never owned a horse. 
but they but they eat a lot of hay, you know, <laughs> and they eat my hay, so that's why we like horses. Yeah, right. It's good for business. Okay, so your hay goes to these places, and then what? How does this work? Because you know, I can grow hay on my farm in Indiana. I wouldn't have any idea how I make this happen. Is there a brokerage? I mean, if I grow a bushel of corn, I can take. If I grow a truckload of corn, I can haul it within. 10 miles of my farm, there's a couple of places. I can go drive it across the scale, dump it, and then boom, they give me a check for my corn. Didn't work this way with hay. Um, my father, as I said, he started his business many years ago, and he, um, he marketed it pretty well. And Red Yard had a reputation of growing this hay. And some people still think we make the best Timothy hay available. I'm having a feeling that maybe your old man was a better salesman than you. He, he probably was whole, a lot. He got the whole world convinced that there's this certain town yeah. up in Upper Peninsula that grows a lot of hay and is the best in the world. So you've somehow, you've been conning the people since 1948. Well, not just me. There was a lot of other people who were conning. <laughs> besides my dad, there was a lot of other people who were conning it because apparently the hay was good because they, they bought it from, you know, all over the country. We used to ship mostly by rail till the early 80s and then we the trucks got bigger and we started going with the trucks but we sold all we didn't sell much across the mississippi river but all on the eastern side of the country we really? sold a lot of hay okay so answer me this how does this work because again i know if i if i have a truckload of corn out of my fields i know i can just run down to the elevator and dump it but you've got you, you know is there a middleman is there somebody that says hey i've got this store in tallahassee and then i got this place over here in uh, in charleston i mean how does this work well, there might be for some people, but I'm I'm a dealer all myself. So we have mar we have people that call us and they want to load hay, and we got our same customers. And sometimes you pick up a new customer, and sometimes you lose a customer over years. But there's less less of a horse market as there used to be, and I think there's less people selling it. But we market a lot in Ocala area, which is a huge horse area. Okay, a lot of people like their horses down in Ocala. So you're a dealer, so that means that you already now have a network. And then do they say, hey, I need a load of hay? Uh, and you say, all right, that's that's good. Uh, and then you quote them a price? Yes, I'll quote them a price. Or if it's a steady customer, they already have the price has been set, you know. Okay. So there's not a lot of haggling over that. Now, here's no. the other thing about quality. Again, if I take my number two yellow corn out of my field in Indiana and I dump it at the elevator, they're going to put a probe in that wagon. They're going to pull it out and they're going to say, yep, number two yellow corn. It's been sold on the Chicago Mercantile Exchange for when it, back when it was the Chicago Board of Trade. It's real simple. Okay, it's got this much uh, debris and foreign matter, and we're going to dock you, you know, two and a half cents a bushel, and it's got this much moisture. We're going to charge you a cent and a half to take that moisture off. Here's your check. Very simple. Hay, because I grew up ra raising hay. I was a dairy farm kid. You've got all different levels, first cutting, second cutting, third. Of course, up there in the Upper Peninsula, Mr. Pleur, they, mm -hmm. they, don't, they don't bother. You know what? I think it must be the easiest thing in the world to be a hay farmer where you only get a week and a half of summer. It can be kind of a challenge sometimes when it rains quite often up there, too. Two years ago, we had the worst year we ever had in our lives. It, it rained constantly. So Three, instead uh, of working a week and a half, you didn't work at all that year? Not a lot, but I but I um I worked pretty hard at at um it was it was tough year put it that way. It I'm was, sure it was. Yes. I'm sure it was. By the way, dear listener, you might notice Bob and I have a little bit of a rapport. He's the president of this National Hay Association, and he and I met last night, and I just delivered my presentation today, uh, right before our recording of this, and uh, I, I gave him a little bit of grief, and everybody liked it. So apparently, he 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 does well with that. All right, so. You got a price set, but let's talk about the quality. I was raised on a dairy farm. First cutting to third cutting, product variation dairies varies a lot. Uh, you got weed content. You got uh, total digestible nutrition. And you got, are we testing this stuff? How do we set? How do we set the price? Very, very little of the alfalfa is tested. 
but there is a quality thing. The earlier the hay is, mar- is baled, the better it is. The you quality. mean Timothy? Timothy, yes. Yeah, you Timothy. said alfalfa. She'll, oh, sorry. Yeah, so your stuff doesn't get tested. Very little of it they gets just, tested. They just get it in the truck, they look at it, touch it with their hand, and say, ah, this feels like good hay, and then that's it? When you sell hay to horse people, they look at the hay, and that's what sells the hay. They're, the horses will eat, just, will eat a lot of different hay. But some people buy it, they're fussy ones. You know, that. so they're, they're they're much harder to sell to. Okay, so you're saying that the issue is just a matter of appearance. Appearance is a big is a big issue. Yeah, the big thing. So it's kind of like supermarket produce. It's got to look pretty and shiny, and that's all that matters. The greener it is, and and the cleaner it is, the better. Yes. And if you tested, if you ver- if you tested, would there be like much variation in nutritional content? No, no. Okay. Protein, low protein. Yeah, it's low protein. It's mostly energy. It's got tons of roughage. Yes. All right. Going back to Mr. Plourd. Uh, all right. We already heard that uh, that old Bob over here, he doesn't have to work that hard. I mean, they don't get any summer up there in the Upper Peninsula. It's summer all the time where you are. So are you just moving hay every day? Yeah, basically, yes. Uh, <laughs> we produced hay, hay in the Imperial Valley. Uh, there's a small amount of hay that's cut every month of the year. Um, but usually in about uh, March, we get into a steady cutting where we're uh, cutting hay every uh, 28 to 35 days. And so an average uh, farmer in the Imperial Valley will cut his hay maybe eight times per year. Right. And um, generally, the earlier in the year, March, April, May, ends up being kind of a premium quality. We test everything. Uh, usually, that is a 20-plus protein and about 160 uh, relative feed value. And then as our summer heat comes in... Um, you said usually by July is when it starts to be a problem? Uh, usually by June, June. then okay. we'll drop protein. But usually, we'll, stick, uh, we'll still be 17, 18, 19% in those months. Okay, so 17 is your low-end number protein 22 is your high end on protein what relative feed value for the person that wasn't raised on a dairy or doesn't rent their farm to a dairy like i do explain that it's basically an energy factor in the hay and so the higher the number the better uh we can get as much as uh what they call 200 which is a super high energy and then uh, but typically it'll drop down to about 130 in the uh, summer months when it's uh, very hot so relative feed value is about energy it's calories that's correct. Okay. And, uh, and the cows, of course, need that because they turn that into milk or meat. Uh, these people that are growing all this, since you're not the grower, you're the, you're the shipper. You have contracts? Do they just say, we know right now that uh, Mr. Plourd wants this many tons and we're going to deliver that? Or do you take everything they produce? What's the arrangement? We basically have, uh, it's, it's, it's the old uh, 75-25 rule. About 75% of our hay comes really from a, a handful of people, maybe 8 or 10. And then the uh, 25%, we, we have to go out to the farmer, and he'll ask for a bid, and then we'll give him a price, and we'll buy it or not buy it. So a lot of it's already standing. Like, it's just, hey, we've already had this thing. All of our hay just goes through them. That's correct. We, like, we have a, a couple of farmers that we literally buy 25,000 tons of hay from a year, yeah. every year for 30 years And if now. you're doing 130,000 tons, if you've got a few of those, that's one-fourth, one-third of your entire mix. That's exactly correct. All right, Mr. Bob, going back up to Michigan, you're a dealer and a raiser of this stuff. You also broker other people's stuff. Correct. How's the business work? Uh, do you have three people like uh, Mr. Plourd does where he's just got them already lined up? I got certain certain um, farmers that produce a small amount of hay, and then they contract to me to move their hay every year, and I'll do that. Um, the our biggest issue up our way anymore is the freight. We're so far north, the trucking costs are are getting very high, and every year they go up more and more, and it's it, it makes it harder to move our product. 
because harder because yours is going to cost more. Because so it costs. Because so, it costs. So you make less on our end. So to justify the transport, you're just going to take less. It, it's get to that point sometimes. Yes. Okay. And then how's the contract work with these people? Do you do you have any? Do you say uh, I get paid when you get paid when I get paid? With most of them, that's the way I do it. But I I'll pay them in. in within a week or two weeks, but I, I, I set a price and if they agree to that price and and um, I'll move their hay and, and then I pay them as soon as, generally as I get paid. You have an unrepossessable product. It goes to Florida, uh, a retail outlet that has five feed stores in Ocala, Florida, then sells it to these people. The people feed it to their horse and then the five feed store owner goes kaput. You're just screwed, aren't you? I got to pay them people for the hay still. Yes. <laughs> Is that ever happened Because I, cause I got a reputation and, and, and they trust me. And yes, it has happened to me before. <laughs> okay. And then what do you do? Do you go down and try and uh, take a, put a, put a lien on some, uh, some feed store in Florida? I, I've tried, tried to get money out of it, but you can't get money out of nothing. Sometimes they're just, they're not there no more. Sometimes you ever thought about going down there, maybe with a couple of guns and just go ahead and taking your know, pound and flesh. I thought about it. Maybe pick a few up in Florida and a few thugs up in Florida. <laughs> I know some people down in Florida, maybe they go, find me some help down there all right where else does your <laughs> stuff go goes to horses it goes to florida tell me about the race you know a little bit about the racehorse thing we, we used to sell to racetracks but um we sell in new orleans quite a bit of hay to the racetrack down there there used to be racetracks in chicago there used to be racetracks in detroit but those are all gone and, okay. and that, that market is really going fast i made a prediction today i think horse racing uh continues to go bye-bye in the next 20 years we got a, a millennial and a post-millennial generation that are more influenced by social causes than any other group has ever been even more so than the baby boomers that burned their draft cards and and, and did all that stuff uh i think the animal sports are going to you know chicken fighting is not allowed anymore and uh, there's much more of a movement for animal humane treatment and fundraising for those groups just goes crazy do you agree with me that horse racing goes away in another 20 years I think horse racing is going is, is going to be a lot less maybe maybe it will be gone completely I don't know there but I think people are going to want to go to the Kentucky Derby forever, I think. <laughs> yeah, Jeff, I want your opinion on that. Since, you, since you're since you out there in Southern California, what is it, Del Mar? Del Mar I, I've been to Del Mar. Beautiful. It's a very high-end place. Eventually, instead of the sport of kings, has it become the sport of no one? I think so. Uh, you know, we've already seen in the uh, Southern California area, you used to have Hollywood Park, Los Alamitos, uh, you know, uh, four or five tracks, and now I think we're down to two. Um is it, because of a loss of, is it because of a loss of revenue, or is it because of the animal rights movement, or both? I mean, there, you, when I've been to off-track betting places, uh, it's like a retired old man thing to do, to go in there and do that. But I'm not sure that when you and I and Bob, because we're a little younger than retired old men, when we are retired old men, are we going to go to the horse off-track betting place or go to Los Alamitos and bet on them? Well, I'm hoping to go to a golf course or something, but... Uh, yeah, I think, uh, but I think I agree with you. I think the horse deal is uh, probably going to go bye bye in the next twenty years. Animal rights reasons. Animal rights reasons. So then the Kentucky Derby just becomes a costume party and a drunk fest, and then uh, and then there's no horses running around. Well, I think it kind of already is, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, I think that's about right. I think it's, that's about right. And the funny hat deal, you know. And, and and by the way, if you watch them play the My Old Kentucky Home, by the time that 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 is actually ready to happen, those people have been drinking for ten hours. They couldn't they couldn't say the words if they did know them. No, that's correct. And, uh, you know, it's kind of a funny story. I went to uh, well, one thing about the National Hay Association is we've met uh, some really great people all over the country and uh, we get together twice a year. And, you know, so I've met a lot of a lot of great people all over. And I was in uh, Dubai at a trade show a couple of years ago and the uh, ruler of Dubai built a 
a horse track, and it held, I think, 350,000 people, and, and there's no betting. And so I think the, the sponsor people just paid for the you know the horse track owners or the horse owners uh, to run their horses and that's how they get paid but there was no mutual betting there and so it was uh, kind of interesting but it's very different from what we think of when we think of what, what why would you even have horse racing if you're not going to have betting betting yep exactly all right so we talked about the future of hay sales through horses and then dairy dairy is the biggest consumer of your product right okay so tell me now bob dairy I, I gave you my numbers that uh, consumption of dairy products is going up by about one to one and a half percent. Last article I read in the United States of America, but it's not because of milk consumption. It's because of cheese, et cetera, and because of a growing population. Also, the problem on dairy is we are still making a lot more milk products than we use. Dairy. It's what happens for, because you care, you, you need two things. You need a paying customer and uh, an animal that eats hay. The dairies are, are going fast. Up in our area, there's very few dairies left, and there used to be a lot of dairies up in our area. There's still a lot of large dairies down in southern Michigan, but they're very large. The ones that come in seem to be very, very... They are very large, but they also buy hay. So you're okay, hay. you're okay, but what happens if we continue to see a slide in dairy consumption? In other words, if our population stagnates, and then we say, all right, we're not, we're, we're just not going to... Then there's going to be less animals eating hay. Yes, there'll be a market um, where they, the people that are marketing their hay to the dairies right now are going to find that they have hay that they can't sell, and it's going to happen. <laughs> I actually believe that there's a, a play to be made on going to a grass and hay-fed dairy product and then pushing the flavor issue, and that would be a way to separate yourself from commodity production. So in other words, if you were not a 5,000-cow dairy or a 1,000-cow dairy and you said, I want to, I think a grass and, gray, a grass and hay-fed milk product, am I right or am I off on a tangent here? Well, you'd have to talk to their nutritionists because they kind of run the show where they feed them what they feed them cattle or those cows and them. It's a good idea. If you can promote it, that'd be great. <laughs> okay, let's keep talking about the future. Where else can your stuff go? Where else can it go? Uh, goats, sheep. You know, we have a continual growth in uh, in an ethnic in an ethnic group that is goat eating. As, as opposed to the, the three people sitting here are white Anglo-Saxon. Uh, you know, residents, uh, uh, the three of us, I've not ever eaten goat, but I know that there's a market for goats because we have a, a couple of ethnic groups that, that prefer goat. Is that a growth category for hay? It could be a growth category. All right. And anything that eats, eats forage is a category for hay. Jeff, your thought on that. Growth categories for hay. I'm just thinking outside the box here. We already know, I think horses are, we already talked about that. And then we've got, we've got the issue of dairies. Where do we see growth? Well, I uh, I agree with you on the uh, on the uh, populations of people eating things like goat, and I've seen in Southern California where uh, there's particularly a feed yard down there that now he's feeding four or five hundred head of goat, and it goes into the L.A. market, and it seems like they'll take just about anything. And the conversion on and that they are is grain or grass or both. They're, or hay, they're feeding, or hay? feeding hay and grass okay. grasses, and the interesting thing is they can make 50 or 60 dollars a head on goat and they only have them uh, maybe eight seven or eight months yeah and so it's a pretty good yeah so do, are we gonna see mass we're gonna see mass uh, goat yards you know goat feed yards i don't think we'll see massive but it'll it'll be a steady continual growth i agree i think it's a category lamb uh, lamb uh, in the Imperial Valley, uh, there used to be a lot of sheep that got uh, pastured uh, this time of year, September, October, November. And I would say in the last 20 years, that's gone down to maybe 10% of where it was 
15, 20 years ago. So our area is not really a, a growth area for, for the lamb. Bob, let's talk about what happens on hay. Uh, and you're the president of the association. So even though we wise apple you about being in the Upper Peninsula, you've got a global read. I mean, you at least have a national read on this. You've got buddies that are hay producers in New Mexico, Washington, uh, Indiana, Missouri, whatever. I haven't seen the massive consolidation. Like in my part of the world, a, f- a person that's farming 2,000 acres now was farming 1,000 acres 25, 30 years ago. What's that happened in hay? In some areas, it has, definitely. In other areas, it's, I think it's gotten less ground. Like in our area, there's a lot less acres in hay than it used to be. Okay. And, and a lot of them acres are just vacant now. They're just not even being farmed. Okay. Well, so in, in more marginal areas, take that the right way, in more marginal areas where there's a water problem, like in Imperial Valley, where they have to fight for their water, or marginal as in Upper Peninsula, where they have a short season, Yes. the alternative to hay is just desert or reforestation that's true a lot of our land a lot of the land there in our area that used to be hayed is is in trees now back in trees logging is very big in our area too yeah and in other areas i think out west there in the new mexico and certain areas out there there the hay ground has probably grown quite a bit i would think expanded it i think so because because of the irrigation and they can in arizona where you go there in the winter time they can grow hay pretty much year-round, can't they? It's okay. So, closing thoughts. Where, where does hay go? You guys are the association. You come in here, you do this a couple times a year. What happens with hay? Jeff, go first. What happens with hay moving forward? I, th- I still think we're going to see growth on the export side. We're seeing uh, countries like, uh, you know, it started off with Japan in the uh, early and mid-70s, and then in the uh, early 90s, Korea came on board. Um, and then uh, uh, China came on about eight or nine years ago, and China went from zero ten years ago to a million ton market. Yeah, and yeah, so they, 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 can get, they can get through a lot of hay quickly. So as long as we have trade, it bodes well because we are we are economically advantaged in growing hay. Is that what I'm hearing? Yes, that's correct. And we used to think in the Imperial Valley that you know we couldn't even go sixty miles into Arizona. You know, is the border in uh, Yuma and then Phoenix and that area, we didn't even think, you know, because of freight uh, that hay would move to the west and get exported. But yep. today, hay from New Mexico, you know, Oregon, Washington, Idaho, Utah, all of, a lot of that hay is moving into the west coast market. So transportation and, used to be more prohibitive than it is now, even though it's still a higher cost, as Bob talked about, it still actually is not a prohibitive is not keeping hay from moving. That's correct. And okay. it's getting exported. So you think it's still a growth market internationally for our export? What about domestically? I think it's going to stay flat or, or even come down a little bit. Because the horses go away, the dairies uh, aren't going to get any bigger probably, and then what about beef? Uh, the cattle, um, I think the cattle will stay pretty steady. Um, Do they use much of your hay? Uh, we only put uh, about 10% in the ration. Um, and we're doing a, a mixed feed ration, but uh, and not a whole lot of pasture or anything like that. Yeah, so area. the beef the beef industry uses hay, but somehow it's not as anywhere close to what we're doing on dairy or even horses. That's correct. Yes, got it. Bob, future. I look at the the market I deal with is the small square bills, and that's definitely going to get less and less. It's a niche market anymore, just for the horse market, and I think the horse market is going to get less and less. Um, some of these, some of these husbands are going to put their foot down. They're not going to let their wives buy horses anymore and stuff because <laughs> says enough's enough. But I agree with Jeff too. Um, the dairy is going to stay flat, and we'll get less, even I think possibly. And um, 
as far as beef. I, I'm not sure about the beef numbers, but they seem to stay fairly steady. Yeah, I think the growth category, if there is one, or at least the way to keep your business propped up is to push on the grass and hay fed because there is a little bit of a movement afoot that there's a flavor component, that there's the healthier fat, what do they call it, the omega fatties, acids in the, in the grass and green and hay fed, I'm sorry. So I think there's a, probably an opportunity there. That's kind of a niche, certainly, compared to sending a truckload every three days to a big dairy. It's a, it's a more of a niche category. All right, closing thoughts. President of the National Hay Association, 124th year. What else you got? for me then we're going to say goodbye um well we are really thank you for coming to our show today damien you did a great job and i think made everybody happy uh, this is a great organization um we get together like jeff said twice a year and we meet new people every year from all over the country it gives you new ideas new new inputs from different people we even had foreigners here we had a foreigner yes. here from from washington state we had some <laughs> we had we had someone from spain here we had someone from italy here some canadians if you call them foreigners, they're just living right north of me. So, <laughs> Thanks for being on here. Uh, we're coming to you, I'd say live, but this is taped, and it's from the National Hay Association. I think you learned some stuff. Thanks for being here, Jeff Pluard and Bob McDowell. You're supposed to say thank you back. Thank you. Yeah, thank you, Damien. <laughs> Appreciate it. Nice meeting you, and uh, look forward to your podcast. All right, until next time, it's the Business of Agriculture.